0: I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm recording from and pay my respects to the Camarangu people and their elders, past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from. Hi, my name is Sarah Malik and I am your host for the SBS Book Club. This week's book club pick is the beautiful, dreamy, lyrical novel The Lovers by Yumna Kassab which was shortlisted for the 2023 Miles Franklin Award. A bit about Yumna. Yumna Kassab was born and brought up in Parramatta in Western Sydney minus two formative years she spent with her family in Lebanon. She studied medical science and neuroscience at university and currently works as a science teacher. Her first book of short stories following the lives of immigrants in Western Sydney, the House of Yusuf*, was listed for prizes, including the Victorian Premier's Literary Award and the Stella Prize. Her second work of fiction, Australiana, was published in 2022, and her latest book, Politico, is out now. Welcome, Yumna. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. <laughs> it's such an honour. I'm such a big fan of yours. <laughs> now, I guess we'll start with, you know, your book, The Lovers, which is such a beautiful book, and it traces the journey of Jamila and Amer. And Jamila is, I guess, an expat on an extended break, drifting in her family's village and she unexpectedly falls in love with a man from the village. Exactly the kind of man her parents might have once arranged for her, except now she's got the confidence of an older woman and she starts a clandestine affair with him. And as they fall deeper in love, Yumna, um, it's almost as if like the world falls away and you fall deeper into their world. Was that kind of a deliberate decision for you to position us into their world as they fall in love?
1: Well, I think that any relationship, no matter what the relationship is, is a wholly private thing and especially in the world between, you know, two people in a sort of romantic relationship, yeah, that everything else in the world does actually take a sort of step back. Uh, It wasn't a conscious decision to, you know, just focus on them but I find that with all the books that I write that usually – the focus is very specific. They tend to follow a character or a couple of characters very, very closely. What sort of interests me is what is actually going on in people's minds and, yeah, their secret, I suppose, their motivations, their ideas, their dreams. And so for that reason, that's why the focus is quite close on Jamila and Amir.
0: Yeah, and it almost replicates that experience of falling in love where you could be in a war zone, but when you're in love, like that person becomes an all-consuming passion. Yeah, I think so. I think I find that I'm a very sort of obsessive
1: person. You know, I've got a number of obsessions, including, you know, The Wanderers and Coffee and Travel and Books. Um, They're very... Yeah, they're very dedicated obsessions of mine. But I do think that from a writing perspective, what interests me the most is to have a sort of closed world and it is something that pops up again and again in
0: each one of my books. Yeah, it's almost like a capsule. And what I love about Jamila and Amir the most is that in a world which kind of reifies, especially in pop culture and music and and books, like, you know, the young and the beautiful and the... Um, kind of shiny, they are not young or, you know, conventionally good-looking, but they have this very deep and very passionate love. What do you love most about Jamila and Amir? I think the thing that
1: stands out in mind for me the most is that they obviously want to try and find a way to be together and I think, you know, focusing this on a love story. A lot of people, you know, sometimes come out with very bold declarations, but when they sort of meet someone, it could be, um, it could be someone, you know, who's uh, like a romantic, can be a romantic sort of connection. It can be, you know, someone that you work with where you actually almost backflip on what you, believe. But the thing that I really love about them is that I think Jamila has a lot of energy and a bit of sass. And I think Amir for me was, I think Arab men typically are portrayed in a particular way. And in The House of Yusuf, The Lovers, Politica, you know, the other things that I'm writing, especially with Arab characters, I'm very conscious of the stereotypes Around Arab men that they're usually portrayed in one or two ways. And it really has nothing to do with the men that I know in the community. And so for me, especially with Amir, it was very important to portray a man who really loves this woman and wants to keep her in his life.
0: Yeah, there's something so deeply vulnerable and sensitive about Amir, and it's something that you don't see reflected in in the popular culture. And even if it's not a political book, it is actually deeply political in a way in its representation of like Arab men.
1: Yeah, I think so. I I think, and also what interests me a lot, you know, one of my favourite characters that I've ever written is Samir, who is Amir's best friend in the book. And I love the open and very direct relationship that they have where they turn up again and again for each other. And I think that also this is a sort of relationship
0: that isn't typically portrayed, especially in connection with Arab men. What do you think draws Amir and Jamila together? I mean, Jamila is someone who, she's a bit adrift Amir is someone who's heartbroken from the breakdown of his first marriage and they're both kind of lonely people seeking a connection. Um, What do you think draws them together? Well, I am not entirely sure. I think that most things that happen in life,
1: especially the very big shifts that happen in a person's life, can often be very unexpected that people are sort of going about their business and then something really catches them off guard. And I think this is Definitely in their story. I don't think Jamila is really looking for something, and I don't think Amir is actually looking for anything. But you know, it sort of catches
0: them off guard. Yeah, and this idea of like love brings about the unexpected or brings about an about turn in your usual way of thinking. Um, there's a passage, if I could read it, yeah, um, that really resonated <laughs> with me. This is Jamila, and she says, "If someone has predicted a future in which she lusted after a man from the village, Jamila would have laughed in their face." She had friends who had fallen for such men, women she knew, educated, intelligent, savvy. She imagined her friends laughing at her and saying, look who's fallen for the oldest (laughs) cliché after resisting all this time. A man from her parents' village, that has already been done. And she sees her life then and how she has wanted greatness, how she has refused the common and how much pain this resistance of hers has caused. But it is not capitulation that she accepts him. He is nothing of the sort. If he was in a lineup of all the men of the world, he is still the person she would want. Even if she had the pick of other men, the handsome, the rich, the smartest, the fastest, he is the one she wants by her side and between her legs. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. that's that's just one of my
1: favorite passages (laughs) i'm glad i'm glad but i think what's actually interesting about that is that there's this sort of idea where again you know a person has these views about their life and what it's going to be like and that you know life often will deal you something that yeah gets you to change your mind completely this book is about
0: loving someone across a gulf And do you think it's something immigrants especially can relate to? Yeah, I think one of the main ideas in The Lovers is that
1: it's looking at the sort of distances between people, whether it's class or geography or money or education. But one of the other ideas that interests me a lot is that, you know, my parents migrated from Lebanon and the people of my generation who have actually grown up here and, you know, our relatives overseas, that it's not exactly culturally the same. And I think lots of people who are migrants, um, such as my parents and, you know, various relatives, and then also my generation and the next generation, that when you actually go back, you do actually live between two worlds. And so The Lovers is also about exploring that sort of not exact perfect connection or lining up of two worlds. And I think anyone who does have, you know, sort of connection to, you know, deep connections to two places, you know, often feels like a hybrid and that you're sort of between two worlds. So I assume that, you know, people who, you know, maybe have a similar sort of connection to two places such as myself, that there are things in this book which are going to resonate at a
0: deeper level. I feel like this book is such an antidote to the the white woman who goes to the East and has this love affair and kind of is oblivious to the politics of the world in which she inhabits um, and the inequalities and and just kind of marvels at their simple lives. And, and Jamila becomes very aware of the inequalities and problems around her uh, and is made aware of them and the kind of privileges and choices her Western passport and money give her. Was that important for you to include that? Yeah, I think the second piece, which is about
1: delusion, and there is also a later piece in the book called The Vegetarian, where it's about a person who... You know, may have a lot of wealth, a lot of privilege, going to a place where, you know, people's opportunities are a lot more limited and then simplifying or trying to glorify their lives
0: or what might actually be difficult in their lives. There's this fear that she has that by committing to him she will lose herself because, you know, she comes from a traditional world in the West where she has grown up and seen domestic violence around her. She's seen women subsumed by marriage and motherhood. And I think that that's a fear that a lot of modern women, especially those of us who grew up in traditional backgrounds, have of of like somehow... Becoming our mothers. And there's this fear that she has where she says, you know, what happens once we become used to each other, once we become bored, once we anticipate each other's moods, like the season cycle in one day? What happens when you tire of me and I tire of you? What keeps us together, except the routine of a child and the boundaries of marriage and the law? I mean, was that something you felt or observed in our generation, that kind of tension of wanting to create something different?
1: Yeah, I think so. But also, you know, it's probably the first time that, you know, people can actually make those choices. I don't know if those choices were particularly available to people previously. I'm thinking especially in terms of the community. But I think this is also a worldwide thing that, you know, women around the world, you know, we've probably had one or two generations where we can actually choose if we have children, how many children we have, if we're married, if we're not married, you know, what we're going to pursue in terms of our lives, that it is a sort of very fresh moment in history. And I think it is something very interesting and important to actually explore from you know, many different viewpoints in fiction because, yeah, we also do want to, you know, present hopefully different ways of living and to actually interact with the complexities that, you know, maybe, you know, previous
0: generations can't actually help us so much with. Yeah, and this fear that she has of those kinds of strictures or conditions changing the parameters of their love or somehow transforming it into something that is no longer this kind of anarchic, beautiful thing anymore. It's such a fear that so many women have.
1: Yep, but also I think from a creative perspective, I've been very, very careful to stay away from formally studying, writing or literature because I really don't want to be told how to write or how to think about the books that I want. And it is a way of, you know, I'm very, very conscious of trying to maintain a space around the things that I that I actually love. You know, in this instance, it's writing, but, you know, I can think of other examples also that it is something also important for me in terms of the relationships I have in my life. You know, there are various people who are very close to me that I never talk about. And that's, you know, just about maintaining that privacy
0: and that sort of independence. In terms of like conceiving and conceptualising the book, is it that tension of like not wanting to do anything too close to home, but then also being inspired by your life experience?
1: Actually, The Lovers I wrote when I was living in Tamworth, it was in the first year of the pandemic. And I suppose the pandemic actually features in this story in terms of the sort of geographic. Um, geographical distances between Jamila and Amir, it was a time that, you know, a lot of us were, you know, isolating or, you know, there were limitations around who we could and couldn't visit. And it did also sharpen the sense of what is important in life, namely, you know, people's relationships uh, versus all the other things that we previously actually thought were important. So I think, honestly, if the pandemic had not actually happened maybe I wouldn't have written The Lovers. Um, it's not necessarily the story I was expecting to write.
0: Politico is a book that is just out recently. Can you tell us a little bit about that book, um, very different to The Lovers?
1: Yeah, I, I think stylistically there are, you know, they overlap quite a bit. The two covers are going to be very, very similar and Ami does have a little cameo in one of the pieces towards the end of the book and that was the first piece that was written about Amir and then, you know, they... Yeah, Jamila and Amir made their appearance. But yeah, Politica, I would say, is you know a feminine way of telling politics. Uh, you know, A lot of people say that women focus their attention on relationships, supposedly focus their attention all on relationships. I'm not entirely sure what other focus there is. Uh, so in this, it's sort of looking at how conflict, politics and war affect people's lives. And I also
0: sometimes say that it's an imagined political history of the Arab world. Speaking of that heritage, like I feel like that is so weaved through your books in just even the language style, like it's a very poetic style with like fables and fairy tales. And is that something you're very inspired by linguistically? I'm not entirely sure, but I think
1: that recently I've become quite aware of how much symbols are very important to me and, you know, even, you know, looking at political events today that what I'm looking for are very old stories, whether they're fables or fairy tales, to help make sense of what's going on in the world at the moment. You know, it is quite different to the stories of the House of Yusuf, which are a lot more realistic, but I think sometimes by using a style that is a bit more fable-like that we can transcend uh, our realities to reach deeper truths. While if I tried to write a story that was very, very realistic, maybe it would just, um, maybe it wouldn't work as well.
0: Yeah, and I think that because they're unnamed places and they have this kind of fairytale quality, there's something very universal about the stories. Even though they're specific people um in specific places, there's something that transcends their place and time, which is, yeah, really beautiful to read. Yeah, I
1: think um, there's a book called Women Who Run With The Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola-Estes, and what she does is... I love that book. Do you? <laughs> yeah. It is. I love this book. If there's, like, if I'm allowed one book... L- You know, just that's it, one book. It's actually that book. Um, But I've been reading that for a very long time to the point where, you know, her versions of the various fairy tales in that book and then her interpretations especially. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I've read it so many times that it's just part of my thinking. And I think when I'm actually writing, I'm sort of drawing on that map that I've built up across my life um, that is using a lot of the symbols that, you know,
0: I've – you've been reading over and over again. It's it's about the metaphor and the story and it becomes a lot less didactic when you approach themes in that way. Yeah, I think
1: uh, Anne Rice with her vampire stories and she also wrote about witches and various things. Another it, author I absolutely love. I'm glad. <laughs> I, I love her so much and, you know, I tell everyone that I love vampires and I think they're not sure if, if I mean it seriously, but I do mean it seriously. But she says um, talking about vampires that she could actually talk about life, death morality and all these things that she couldn't if she tried
0: to write straight social realism. Going back to the the book, The Lovers, um, Yeah, a a lot of it is about the contradictions of like small town village life where people gossip, but they also turn a blind eye to certain things. And I wanted to ask you, you know, Jamila and Amir are very discreet, but everyone in their Muslim village knows they're sleeping together, including Amir's mother, who, you know, makes a visit. How do Jamila and Amir, do you think, get away with this affair in this village? I have my own theories, but how do you think they get away with it? That is a good question and one that I've never considered. However, I think
1: because they're not meeting in public that maybe they get away with it, Um, that a lot of what is going on is happening under the cover of darkness. That is one factor. But then the other factor is, that sometimes people from abroad are allowed more allowances than people who are in the
0: village. Yes, and I think that because Jamila's kind of a loner and an outsider and a foreigner, any stigma or censor that is kind of placed upon her won't really affect her because, you know, What can you do to ostracise someone who's already kind of ostracised themselves?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and obviously she can just leave. If she was maybe staying and living, you know, permanently in this village, it's I think a different reality.
0: I think there's something very delicious about that. You know, as someone who kind of grew up in a very conservative community in the West where you're always worried about a Pakistani and you're looking at you and doing something or saying something, she almost goes to the heart of of the gossip central and flagrantly breaks the taboo and codes there, but almost in defiance, but there's no way that she can be censored. So there's something kind of a bit radical about that. Yeah,
1: I think so. I think so. And I think there is um, there is a story in there which sort of, subverts a particular, um, well, it's a subversive kind of fairy tale, I think, the one called Feathers. But I think it is very interesting to take the sort of traditional story and upend it. I really like that.
0: Yeah. um, But also I think it kind of upends our kind of assumptions and presumptions of village life because there's other stories interspersed in the book about, you know, all the surprising and contradictory things that people do. So even in a village, there's people having affairs and there's people who, you know, break taboos and do things that are, you know, unconventional. And and yeah, it kind of also upends our own assumptions, Western presumptions of, of what a village is or what people do. Yeah, I really enjoyed the time that I was living in Tamworth. But the thing that I
1: found very interesting was that people had a greater awareness of what's happening in their community compared to a place like Sydney. And in that aspect, it actually reminded me a bit of Lebanon, where people for many generations probably know each other's families. There is this sort of sense of connection to a place and not so much movement that you would actually find in a city. So yeah, I, I think there was a interesting parallel between yeah, the place yeah, places in Lebanon and then also Tamworth, actually.
0: That's an interesting parallel because you spent two years in Lebanon growing up and then you spent three years in Tamworth, I think, between 2018 and 2021. You know, you are born and bred in Western Sydney and a lot of that inspires House of Yusuf, your first book of short stories, which is kind of centres around immigrants in Western Sydney. Can you tell us a bit about, I guess, you know, your first book, House of Yusuf, published in 2018? Fair to say as as an older writer, um, what was that, like getting that book deal and, I guess, honing your craft in the years before that? Yes.
1: So there was a lot of
0: honing, let's say. (laughs) There were many, many years of honing.
1: Um, I've been writing from a very, very young age, but the first thing that I had published was in a very um, small magazine called Zine West, and I think that was 2015, and it was the first story in The House of Yusuf, so Cigarettes and Smoke. Uh, the House of Yusuf stories. I put together the first part of the book and sent it to Girimondo and sort of hoped for the best. And I approached Girimondo because they sponsored the Zine West Prize. And I didn't necessarily know at the time anyone who was a writer or really in the literary sort of community or in the publishing industry. And I, you know, really emphasize that for all the people out there who may be writing. And no, no one in the industry, you don't have to know anyone. But essentially, I sent those stories off to Giramondo and then three or four months later, Iva, who is the head of Giramondo, um, contacted me to say, hey, you know, these are interesting stories. Could we, you know, speak? And in that conversation, what came about is that the first section of stories, maybe there's a hundred pages, were too short to be a book on their own, and he asked if there was anything else that I had. I have boxes of stories at home, so yes, there's a very big archive, but essentially what I did is there were a series of stories that were also centred around, yeah, around Western Sydney and with Lebanese migrant community in mind, and so those were the stories that I ended up putting together into the house of Yusuf.
0: Wow. And so, you know, you um, studied neuroscience and medical science at university. You worked as a science teacher for many, many years. And so what kept you going on the writing that you were working on, on the side for many years? Like what kept you going to like still kind of believe in yourself as a writer um, over many years as you were kind of honing your craft?
1: You know, I do have it, you know, at the forefront of my mind that hypothetically, if I never publish anything again that I'll be writing every day, that it is something that is part of my life. And I do anticipate that even at my deathbed, I'll probably be writing stories. So that is not going to change and it's got nothing to do with publishing. You know, that's a sort of side thing. And I'm very conscious in terms of, you know, handing projects over to my publisher. I only ever hand in a project that is completely finished. It's clear in my mind. I never speak about my ideas as I'm writing them. And that's just to protect this as a space, a sacred space with the muse, I guess, and to always keep it as my own thing. Was it a dream come
0: true or was it just, okay, well, I will do this regardless of whether I'm published or not. So I'm trying not to read too much into it. Like what was that exciting to burst onto the scene in this way and kind of have, have your work out there? I think the biggest change for me is
1: that Before I published The House of Yusuf, I didn't really, other than a couple of friends and most people didn't actually know that I wrote. And it wasn't until House of Yusuf was published that I actually started to say to people that I actually write. And now being the Parramatta Laureate, I can be very open about it. So yeah, I think that's probably been the biggest change for me.
0: Yeah, because you are someone I think who likes to keep their cards close to their chest. You're someone who doesn't like to speak about something. Maybe you're superstitious. You don't want to ruin it by talking too much about it before it's done.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think there is an element of, you know, superstition, but also, you know, keeping this the mystery and what's sacred and, you yeah, know, just having it as a protected space that there are only so many hours in the day. And, you know, we can be talking about writing or actually writing. So I choose to write rather than you know, be talking about it, I guess. Except on this podcast. Um, except, you know, this hour, which is dedicated to Sarah and actually talking about the book.
0: Um, were your students excited when they saw your name out and your book out? Oh, the, the thing is,
1: so any teacher who knows, you know, anyone who's teaching already knows this, but, yeah, the minute they have a new teacher, they Google you. So yeah, all those, the photos, the books, they come up and yeah, they are actually very, very, very excited. And I do make a point of telling my students that yeah, I'm from Parramatta. And the reason I actually say that to them is so that they don't actually think if they have creative plans or, you know, they are into the arts, that they need to be from somewhere else, or have super wealthy parents, or anything like that. So I do, you know, sort of emphasise that to my students. But yeah, they're very, they're very excited.
0: Tell me a bit about your writing process, because you know you work as a science teacher and you know make a living like all of us have to. And how do you fit in your writing around that? Like, yeah, tell us a bit about your writing process. Yeah, so I, I generally keep a notebook, um, and
1: I take this notebook wherever I go. I today have made the mistake of leaving the house without the notebook. And so I have little scraps of paper in my copy of The Lovers, and I've been writing on that. Uh, But generally speaking, I do have a notebook wherever I go. And I like to write over coffee in the morning, preferably at a cafe. If not, it's after school. Um, But I don't really aim for, you know, more than say 15 minutes. And the reason I say that is because fifteen minutes is actually doable. It's, you know, it sort of overcomes any sort of procrastination barrier. But the idea is just to sit down in a very regular way and actually write, and not be particularly fast about what's being written. That it can be as crappy as it wants to be. Uh, and Ray Bradbury, in a book called *Zen in the Art of Writing*, says that. If you skip a day, no one will actually know that you've skipped a day in the story. But if you skip two to three days, it will actually start to show in the story. And it's something that I keep in mind, that it is very important to keep close to the story that I'm actually writing.
0: Wow. No excuses, listeners. You know, you, all you need is 15 <laughs> minutes a day to write your book and you can do it over coffee. And if if Yumna can, you can. So you're setting the bar high. I, I do think it's misleading. I say that I aim for 15 minutes. I obviously
1: write more than 15 minutes. I'm quite happy writing, you know, for a very long period of time, but I just have that
0: always as a minimum. I'm not allowed to write less. Ah, And it's just about grabbing snatches of time wherever you can, right? Yes,
1: exactly. It's not, you know, I do know some people who aim for two-hour sessions. I think that sounds like work. And so I just prefer to keep it very small and very manageable. And
0: like you chip away at it slowly. That's it. It's, you
1: know, just small little bits. And I do think that the reason a lot of my stories are quite short is because, they're written over coffee and as soon as that coffee is done, that's <laughs> it, the
0: story is done. <laughs> I love that. If you want more, you've got to give her a bigger cup of coffee, guys. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Last question. Are you a romantic?
1: No, I'm actually very cynical. <laughs> <laughs> I am very cynical and I never expected I would write a book called The Lovers. So there we go. How did you write that as a cynic? Um, I think what's important as a writer is to, when you occupy the, the viewpoint of a character, and to me they aren't characters, you know, they were with me for a year and they are real to me, but to, yeah, completely be in their world, to be immersed with them, for there to be no separation. And I think one of the biggest rookie mistakes a person can make who is reading is to assume that the writer and the characters are the same or that they share the same views because often what I'm doing and I'm sure other writers do is that, you know, you occupy someone else's world and viewpoint completely,
0: even if you're a cynic. Can you tell me about how Jamila and Amir came into your world and into your heart and subconscious? I think
1: one weekend... In Tamworth, it may have been in April 2020. I wrote maybe seven or eight of the first pieces and I kept coming back to these characters. I did read Lady Chatterley's Lover in March. That is a book that reminds me of this one. Yes, and that book, other than all the sexiness that goes on, is very much about class And, you know, I read it and I think I forgot about it and then I went back to it last year and I have to say that D.H. Lawrence is fantastic at exploring the sort of social dynamics, especially around class, that in that instance everyone was very happy for her to, I'm talking about Lady Chatterley, everyone to have her affair but she was not meant to fall in love. That was her transgression.
0: Yes. And these are the demarcations that we put on people and ourselves. Exactly. Gosh, thank you so much. I mean, I feel like we could talk for another hour and you have just been a pleasure to have on. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for being part of the SBS Book Club. I'd love you to follow, share, rate or review the podcast if you're enjoying it. You can share your own thoughts and picks with the hashtag SBSBookClub. Time to head to the bookshop or library to prepare for our next episode of Book Club. We have Mirandi Riewau with the luscious new novel Sunbirds, set in the Dutch East Indies on the eve of World War II. For those of you who love a good period novel, this one's for you. It's got it all. War, love, romance, even a plane crash. See you next week.